Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see a lot of uh, new faces, see some college students. Welcome to you guys. Um, we have always really desired to be a church that um, ministers to the Yukon community, and so it is super exciting to see more college students than we've seen in quite a while here. So uh, great to have you guys here. So we are now in week three of our Uncommon Sense series, where we're looking at practical wisdom from the book of Proverbs. And uh, as Keith said, uh, this week we're talking about the Proverbs wisdom on the topic of sex. Uh, if, you, if you missed Keith's announcement earlier, you may remember that he mentioned that this is a PG-13 message. Uh, so if you have kids and you feel like uh, this isn't really, they're not ready for this, feel free to send them downstairs. There's uh, opportunities available for them down there. Uh, but just so you know, I'm not going to be saying anything more explicit than when, what's actually in Scripture. Uh, the most explicit part of this message is going to be something that I read out of the Bible. So uh, just keep that in mind. Um, now you may be thinking, uh, is it really appropriate to have a sermon on this topic in church? And my answer is absolutely. Uh, one, because the Bible talks very frankly about sex. Uh, and two, because there's really very few places in our culture right now where God's wisdom on this topic is taught or encouraged. Uh, the culture that we are in right now is always teaching us about sex. Always. Uh, we're taught perspective on sex through TV and movies, through advertising, through popular music, uh, through fashion, through public school education, through university classrooms and programs. Uh, and sadly, many of us are taught perspective on uh, sex through pornography. And the perspective that comes through all of these sources is almost never rooted in God's wisdom. Uh, in fact, the perspective presented is often the very opposite of the perspective of God. And so it is so important for the church to talk about God's wisdom on this topic, because if we don't, we will lose it. Uh, and losing it is a tragic thing, because how we manage our sexuality has tremendous impact on us as individuals and our individual lives, and it has tremendous impact on society as a whole. So think about this, regarding society as a whole, um, according to the National Center for Health Statistics, in 2015, 14.3% of the babies born in the United States were to unmarried women. So about four out of every 10 babies. But, in 1940, just 3.8% of babies were born to unmarried women. So four out of every hundred, or a little less than four out of every hundred. Now that is an incredible statistic. Especially when we consider that in 1940, most of the most effective and most popular forms of contraception now were not available, right? So what that suggests, is that there are a lot more people now having sex outside of marriage than in 1940. Uh, a lot, because even with an abundance of contraceptive options, 
2015, four out of every 10 babies were born to unmarried women. But in 1940, it was only four out of every 100. So there's far more kids growing up today with, with parents who are not married. And that has a, an effect on those kids. It's hard to measure, measure exactly what the effect is, but there is an effect there. And it, there's an effect on our society as a whole. So how we manage our sexuality as individuals has ramifications on a society-wide level. It's something that we need to keep in mind. Now, I said in the introduction to this series that one of the reasons that we need God's wisdom is because we are not naturally wise. Uh, well, this is one area of life where I really think that this point is very evident. God's wisdom on this topic is truly uncommon sense, uh, especially in the culture we're in today. Without God's help in this area of our lives, we are lost. We need help. And the Proverbs recognize that. Now, before we get into scripture, I want to say something that is so important. If you hear nothing else this morning, this is what I, I want you to hear. My goal this morning is to share some basics about God's wisdom on sex. My goal this morning is not to heap shame or condemnation on anyone. So please... Don't take it that way. Uh, I am not naive, or at least I don't think I am. So I recognize that if the statistics are accurate, many of us in this room, if not the majority, have not followed God's wisdom about sex. Uh, or at least we have deviated from it at certain points in our lives. And actually, I feel quite confident in saying that regardless of our amount of sexual experiences, no one in this room has managed their sexuality in a sinless way. Nobody has. This is an area of life where every one of us needs the grace of God. Okay? So there's this sense in which all of us are in the same boat here. And so with that said, I want to start this message by reminding us that there is nothing that is unforgivable through Jesus Christ. Whoever we are, Whatever our sexual experiences, Jesus Christ has the power to make us new. So, please keep that in mind as you hear everything else that I'm about to say. I'm going to be saying that sex is a big deal. I'm going to be saying that sexual sin is significant. But God's grace is more significant and more powerful than any of our sexual sins. Okay? So we got that? Okay. All right, so let's get started. So the first chapters in Proverbs are written from the perspective of a parent speaking to a son, probably a father speaking to a son. And in chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And this address of my son actually appears repeatedly throughout the first several chapters of Proverbs. And it doesn't take long, it just takes two chapters before the parent starts talking about the topic of sex. And I think that for any of us who are parents, and also for a ministry leader such as myself, uh, we should take note of this example. Part of equipping a young person for life is giving them wisdom about managing sexuality. That really is essential. 
So parents, as awkward as it may be, I encourage you, I exhort you, do not neglect this topic with your kids. Um, you might think, oh, I'm not going to be very good about talking, talking about it with my kids. Well, I promise, that, I promise you that if you love your kids, you will be better at it than all the other major sources that they may learn about it from. <laughs> you will be better at it than TV and movies and popular music and Instagram models and celebrities and Game of Thrones and all that stuff. You will be much, much better because those sources are not interested in your kids. They don't love your kids. They're interested in money. That's their motivation. So please talk to them and keep in mind that statistics indi indicate that the average age of first exposure to internet pornography is 11. Um, so now, <laughs> this might sound extreme, uh, but I would say that if we as parents neglect to talk to our kids about this topic, it's kind of like not giving them food. Like it's, it's on that level of neglect. Uh, if you think of life like war, then raising kids is like preparing them for battle. And if you never talk about sex with your kids at all, if you never try to impart wisdom about sex to your kids, it is like sending your kids to the battlefield with nothing to defend themselves. Uh, so I encourage you, follow the example of the writer in Proverbs. And when the time is appropriate, don't neglect talking about this issue. So what does he say and what can we learn from it? Well, as I said, he starts addressing the topic of sex in the second chapter. Uh, he's talking about wisdom and how wisdom has the power to save his son from all these different threats. And in chapter 2, verse 16, he talks about one of the threats. He says, Wisdom will save you also from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. For her house leads down to death, and her paths to the spirits of the dead. So the adulteress is seen as a significant threat. He says, her house leads down to death. Now what exactly is the adulteress? Well, we're told in verse 17 that she is someone who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant that she made before God. So in other words, she's someone who has been married but she's forsaken her vows. She's seeking intimacy with another man. Now, there's a little detail uh, that says something about the way marriage is supposed to be that's easy for us to miss, and, and I want us to notice it. Um, it's the word here, partner. Partner. The Hebrew word that gets translated here as partner is the word aloof. And that word, which is sometimes translated as companion, suggests intimate friendship. So it's not just talking about physical intimacy, erotic intimacy, it's talking about friendship kind of intimacy, companionship. Uh, this, this same word, aloof, actually shows up in Proverbs 16:28, where it says, a perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates close friends, separates aloofs. So right there, it's clear Right? That, that's not about sexual intimacy, that's just about friendship, companionship. So what the writer is implying is that 
part of what marriage is supposed to be is a union of friendship. Okay, your spouse is supposed to be your aloof, your intimate friend. And what's super interesting about that is that when this was written, marriage was not usually seen in that way. Uh, when you got married, it wasn't so much about companionship or friendship or even love, romantic love. It was about things like making sure you had a way to have kids. It was about increasing your economic status, increasing your social status. Those, those were the things that you focused on when you were getting married, not on friendship. Um, so, but here, marriage is described as a union of aloofs. So whenever you see something in the Bible that's countercultural like that, it should stand out to us about what God's intention really is. And another reason that this is significant is because if your spouse is your aloof, that suggests that your spouse is supposed to be your equal. Right? Close friends don't have the kind of relationship where one owns the other and tells the other what to do, right? Uh, close friends interact as equals, which again was a very countercultural perspective on marriage during this time. So the adulteress is someone who has betrayed her aloof, her close friend, because she has, see she has sought intimacy with another man. And the writer says that in doing this, she has ignored the covenant she made before God. Now, what I want us to notice here is a very important aspect about God's wisdom when it comes to sex, which is that sex is supposed to be the symbol of a covenant. Okay, when we think about how God views sex, the first word that should come into our minds is covenant. Now, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a promise of lifelong faithfulness. You might remember that God made a covenant with Israel. He made a promise to them that he would be faithful to his word, to, to bless them, to give them the, the land, to bless the whole world through them. That was his covenant from, with them, and he, he, he promised in making that covenant never to uh, deviate from that. And throughout scripture, sex is seen as an act that God has designed to symbolize lifelong faithfulness between spouses. It's an act that's meant to be an expression of covenant faithfulness. So one way of putting it is that sex is supposed to have covenant-creating power. I'm going to use that phrase a lot today, covenant-creating power. It's supposed to be the seal and symbol of lifelong faithfulness, lifelong faithfulness between aloofs. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, is sex really that big a deal? I mean, people have one-night stands. It doesn't, it doesn't have covenant-creating power in that, in that instance, right? Is it, why should we think of sex as being this significant? Well, here's one, one reason why. Let's just take a step back from it and think about it this way. Do you think that people are significant? I think we can all agree on that, right? People are significant. There's nothing more important than people. People are more important than any thing that exists, right? Sex is God's means for creating more people. When God set things up, he decided this is how more people are going to come into the world, through sex. So if people are that important, it makes sense that we would also see the act that leads to them as especially holy and special, something that's meant to be treated with awe and honor and respect. 
rather than just casually. Another reason for recognizing how significant sex is, uh, and I speak about this with absolute seriousness, is the pain that comes from sexual assault. Sexual assault is a terrible crime because when an act that has been designed by God to have covenant-creating power is forced on somebody, that is a terrible violation of God's design. The fact that we as a society recognize how evil sexual assault is is a sign that we do still on some level recognize the covenant-creating power of sex. Because in recognizing sexual assault as evil, we are recognizing sex as significant, tremendously significant, and that's why it's so important for it to be consensual. Now, some people might say, and some people do say, well, the act of sex itself is not that significant. You know, it doesn't have this covenant-creating power that you talk about. The reason sexual assault is significant is because of the importance of consent. Now, in response to that, I would say, yes, consent is hugely important. But the reason it's so, so important is because of the significance of what is being consented to. You know, if I am having lunch with someone, and they see my fries, and they want some of my fries, and they just grab them without my consent, that might annoy me, but that's not going to lead to deep pain. That's, that's not going to cause post-traumatic stress disorder. That's not something that I'm going to need to see counselors about. Why? Because French fries, with or without consent, aren't that big of a deal, right? But sex is significant. <clears throat> and it's significant because God's intended purpose for sex includes this covenant-creating power. It's supposed to be the symbol and seal of lifelong commitment, and that has to be consensual. Now, please don't misunderstand me. If you are someone who has suffered from sexual assault, and again, if statistics are true, there are multiple people in this room who have, uh, I am not saying that a covenant was created between you and the perpetrator. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that in that assault, God's design was violated by the perpetrator. And that's why that act had the power to cause pain, because sex is significant, and God intended for it to be significant, and it is intended to have covenant-creating power. And because sex has covenant-creating power, it also has covenant-breaking power. Uh, this woman in the Proverbs who seeks sex with another man, she breaks her marriage covenant in doing that. Jesus recognized the covenant-breaking power of sex as well. He said in Matthew 19, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So in other words, the only thing that has the power to break your marriage covenant is unfaithfulness, which I believe actually encompasses a, a short but significant list of things. But the main thing that Jesus has in mind right here is adultery, uh, sex with someone other than your spouse. Because God's design for sex is to have this covenant creating power, when someone commits adultery, it also has covenant-breaking power. 
Now, I want to add, Jesus is not saying here that if your spouse commits adultery, you are commanded to divorce them. He's not saying that at all. In fact, there are beautiful stories of reconciliation in marriage uh, after adultery. Um, However, what he is saying is that it is legitimate grounds for divorce. Why? Because sex is that significant. Because it has covenant-creating power and it has covenant-breaking power. That's God's design for sex. Now, our culture today is very much in conflict with this wisdom. And I would put it in this way. This is how, we're, how our culture is different. Our culture thinks that sex should have covenant-breaking power, but not covenant-creating power. Does that make sense? Covenant-breaking power, but not covenant-creating power. So let me explain why. Our culture's wisdom on sex right now goes something like this. If you are not married, you are free to have sex with anyone who will consent to have sex with you. So sex does not have covenant-creating power. However, once you are married, then if you have sex with anyone else you're not married to, that has covenant-breaking power. And what I want us to see is that that way of thinking doesn't really make sense. If sex is significant enough that it has the power to break a covenant, then it should be honored as something that has covenant-creating power in the first place. But, (laughs) oh, how we as a a culture have moved so far from that perspective. Uh, A team of researchers from San Diego State University surveyed 57,000 Americans And in 2012, 58% of Americans say that premarital sex is not wrong at all. Not wrong at all. So over half. And if you just take out the millennial generation, my generation, that's 62% say that. Not wrong at all. And uh, what's very interesting is that when people were surveyed on the same question in 1970, only 29% of Americans said premarital sex is not wrong at all. So we have seen a tremendous shift in how our culture thinks about sex just over the last 45 years. And here is the heart of that shift. The heart of that shift is we no longer think that sex has covenant-creating power. And I think that when we lose that, um, when we lose that as a culture, And, God forbid, if we lose that as the church, we lose something that's very precious. A little while ago, we had a baptism ceremony, which is a great day, one of my favorite days since I became pastor of this church. We baptized eight people. And I apologize if this analogy sounds a little weird, but there is a sense in which baptism is like sex. Because baptism is supposed to be the symbol of our lifelong covenant with God just as sex is supposed to be the symbol of our lifelong covenant with our spouse. Now, the analogy breaks down a little bit because baptism is supposed to be public and sex should not be. Um, But there is a similarity there. So when you think of sex from that perspective, having sex before you're married, you see how that dishonors the act itself, okay? Because 
It's kind of like if you were baptized a bunch of times, like every time your church had a baptism service, you went and got baptized. But then you would say, well, that wasn't really my baptism. That was just for fun. <laughs> and, and you did that repeatedly. Um, if you did that, that would be very disrespectful to the act of baptism, right? And sadly, it would probably make it harder for you to ever experience baptism in the way that was really intended. Because after going through the motions of baptism repeatedly just for fun, it would be hard to then switch your mindset and say, oh, this time it's the symbol of the covenant. This time it's the symbol of my covenant relationship, my lifelong commitment to God. So it's so important that we as the church not lose sight of God's intended connection between sex and covenant creation, between sex and lifelong commitment. All right, let's read uh, a bit more of the wisdom that's offered to the Son. This is, if you're following along, this is in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now, before I comment on these verses, I want to make an important clarification, which is I realize that for the women here, it might seem like this is a little unfair, because it might seem like the woman is getting all the blame for being the tempter, and like the woman's the one that's always trying to encourage the, the man to be an adulterer. Um, this is where it's important to recognize the context of what's being written here, right? This is a father speaking to his son. So naturally, the son is going to talk about how he expects that the, the, the man is going to be tempted by women to do what he's not supposed to do, right? But, the, but this is not supposed to be some sort of biblical commentary on how women are more, uh, more likely to try and encourage men to sexual sin than the reverse. It's, it's not like that at all. You could um, envision this as being said to a daughter uh, and, and imagine that the man is the tempter if, if, you, if you want, and you would still be maintaining the spirit of the text. I believe. So try not to, for any of the women in the room, I encourage you not to let that um, get in the way of you appreciating what this is saying. So the main point that the father makes here is that sexual sin looks really, really good in the moment, uh, but in, it is painful in the long run. It breaks hearts, it destroys trust, it divides families. It increases the number of, of kids that are growing up without both their parents. It increases the number of aborted children. It cheapens sex. Uh, and sometimes it spreads disease, or at least it creates a society where everyone's always got to be worried about getting sexually transmitted diseases. And in addition to all those things, there's something that's a bit uh, less tangible that it does, but it does something to our souls, sexual sin. Uh, Pastor Ray Ortland describes it this way. He says, Oops. To have a full sexual relationship with somebody is to give physical expression to what is meant to be a covenant, covenanted relationship. That is, stable, faithful, permanent. To say physically, I am giving myself to you, while at the same time emotionally and spiritually holding back from covenanted commitment 
is in fact to live a lie, a split in the personality which is ultimately stressful and destructive. So what he's saying there is there's something about the action of sexual sin that causes a break in our relationship with ourselves. And what I want us to notice here, after giving that list of all these negative consequences, is that the wisdom God offers us in this area is not for the purpose of ruining our fun. It's really not. It's, it's to help us. It's to spare us. It's to keep us from going down to death. Once I was talking to uh, a friend who, for in a period in his life, was really, really promiscuous. Uh, this guy said that he told me he had hundreds of sexual partners. Um, and during one of our conversations, I had an opportunity to share about the biblical perspective on sex. And I said something like, and the reason that God wants us to keep sex within the context of lifelong commitment, it's not because he just wants to set up arbitrary rules that are no fun. It's, it's because he wants what's best for us. It's because he wants us to flourish as individuals and families and as a society as a whole. And the truth is that when we, when we live in a society that separates sex from lifelong commitment, uh, it causes harm. It causes harm for us and it causes harm for a society as a whole. And this man, this man who has had hundreds of sexual partners, he said to me, that's true. It doesn't do a bit of good. And the way he said it, I knew that he meant it. It was, it was the response that's born from experience. He said, yeah, you're right. It doesn't do a bit of good. Now, the father's advice about sex, though, is not all negative. Okay, not at all. Listen to what it says, uh, starting in chapter 5, verse 15. And I'm going to try not to turn red, but if I do, you can all just laugh at me. <clears throat> Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Now, the cistern or the well is a metaphor for female sexuality. Okay. Continuing. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Now, similarly, the springs are a metaphor for male sexuality. Uh, that makes sense, right? I'm not going to explain it, but I think you can figure it out. <clears throat> Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. In other words, your cistern or your fountain is not supposed to be shared with anyone else other than your spouse. Just as it would be strange to take water that you use in your household hold for drinking and washing stuff and just pour it out in the streets. He's saying it, it's weird to just let your sexuality run free in the streets. Okay? It's uh, supposed to be reserved for your spouse alone. Now, again, positive view of sexuality. Listen to this next part. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the life of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. That's not something you expect to hear in church on Sunday morning, but hey, it's in the Bible. Now the word for captivated there, it actually means to stagger as if drunk. And so what, he's, what the father is saying to, you, to the son is be crazy in love with your spouse. 
Be crazy in love with your spouse. You know, find your sexual satisfaction in each other. Enjoy each other. Love each other in the erotic sense. You know, sometimes we think of God as being very prudish. You know, we think uh, the scripture is very prudish, that God and the Bible are, are just like, like, ooh, sex, don't talk about that. But God is not prudish. You know, God created sex. He loves sex if it's in the appropriate context. If it's in the appropriate context, he encourages it. He blesses it. He says, go for it. He's not shy about it. He's not embarrassed by it. He's not shy about it here, right? And notice, he doesn't say something like, thou shalt only have sex in order to make a baby, and when you do, be, have it grudgingly, you know? No, he, he says, there's nothing, there's nothing here about children, right? Uh, not that, obviously, there is a big connection there, but that's not the point of this passage. You know, he's saying, may you ever be captivated by your spouse's love. May you enjoy your spouse's body. That in itself is good and blessed. That's something that God wants you to do. God's a fan of sex. He just wants it to be within the bounds of covenant relationship, of lifelong commitment. Now, I realize that for some of us, this encouragement here to enjoy sex within the context of a covenant might feel unhelpful. Uh, because if we're not married and we want to be married, we might feel like, well, now there's no outlet for my sexuality. And I understand that is not easy. Like, I get it. I'm 33. I'm not married. I understand. Uh, but we, we need to remember this. That as far as God is concerned, it is better not to have sex at all for your entire life than it is to have it outside of a covenant relationship. That is something that I think we, as human beings, have a really, really hard time believing is true. But we have to remember that God's wisdom is better than our wisdom. You might remember when I started this series, the introduction was on this concept of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. If you want to have wisdom, this is where you start, the fear of the Lord. And what is the fear of the Lord? It is the openness to being corrected by God. It is the willingness to recognize God's wisdom is better than mine, and I need to realize that. And God's wisdom basically says, to put it simply, outside of lifelong commitment, sex is not worth it. As hard as that might be to believe. Now there's one last proverb that I want us to look at this morning that I think helps to show why God wants sex reserved only for a covenant relationship, only for lifelong commitment. And it's Proverbs 30, verse 20. This is what it says. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. Now, what does that mean? What this is saying is that the adulteress treats sex the same way someone treats food. She has an urge to eat. She eats. She wipes her mouth. She says, I've done nothing wrong. She treats sex like a product to be consumed. For her, sex is just like dinner. 
And this is the attitude towards sex that is so destructive and so dangerous because people are not like food. People have feelings, people have souls, people are made in the image of God. People are not meant to just be consumed like any other product. And when they are, it's very damaging. It's very damaging to relationships. It's very damaging to our world as a whole. There is just something that is grotesque about treating a human being like dinner. But there is something very beautiful about spouses mutually enjoying each other when they have pledged to love each other as long as they both shall live. Because when two people pledge to love each other as long as they both shall live, they're not treating each other like dinner. They're not treating each other like food. If you get a bad plate of food, what do you do? You either toss it aside, right, or you order a new one. But when you commit to a spouse, you pledge to love them and be faithful to them even when times get hard even when the sex isn't that good. The covenant of, of marriage keeps us from treating people like dinner. Um, it protects sex from just becoming another consumer relationship, another relationship where it's just about what can you give me? Because when sex is treated as a consumer relationship, it causes more pain than pleasure. It leads down to death. Okay, this is an enormous topic, and I realize that I just scratched the surface. I probably raised a bunch of questions, um, but we can't be here forever. <laughs> so I will say, though, I am planning on doing a Q&A service. We like to do that occasionally, um, and I, uh, I'm not in a place where I like to just receive all the questions on the spot. So uh, if you have questions that are stirred by this message in particular, I encourage you to email me them over the next couple weeks. And when we have uh, the Q&A service, some of those may come up. Uh, we're going to be doing it, I believe, uh, whatever the Sunday is after October 8th. I think it's the 15th, so in, a, in about a month. So please, if, if this sparked more questions, I encourage you to email me. And I want to close with two messages uh, to two types of people. First, okay, if you are unmarried and, and you are a virgin, I want to encourage you not to think that you're just fated to mess up in this area of your life. I know I've been in church throughout my life, and I've heard a lot of people get up and tell stories about how, you know, I messed up and God redeemed me. And that's beautiful, and that's wonderful, and we need those stories. But I also want to say to you, that doesn't have to be your story. It really doesn't. Um, it is possible, with the help of the Holy Spirit, for you to decide to make good choices. Um, and it's worth making the right choices. It really is. So despite the overwhelming pressure that exists around you um, for you to disconnect sex from covenant creation, don't, don't give in to that. You know, stand your ground with the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, and value what you have and, and protect it. And the other kind of person I want to speak to is everybody else. Uh, and I want to say, if, if what I have said makes you feel heavy or burdened, um, if you just feel like, man, I have fallen far short of God's standards, I, I just want to remind you again, 
of what I said in the beginning. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven through Jesus Christ. Our sexual sins are not more powerful than God's grace. Through Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. So God is calling us to receive his forgiveness. But as he is doing that, he is also calling us to repentance. Okay, he wants us, regardless of how many sexual experiences we have, of, uh, regardless of how promiscuous we might have been, to move into the future guided by his wisdom in this area. Because his wisdom does not lead down to, to death, but to life. And in these days where sex is just becoming more and more like eating dinner, God wants us, his church, to continue to recognize that sex is meant to be a covenant-creating act, an act of lifelong commitment between alufs, and he wants us to model that for the rest of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, um, I pray that each one of us right now would have a powerful sense of your grace and your love for us. God, we thank you that you do not want to leave us uh, lost and confused and at the whims of whatever um, sinful inclination we might have, God. Um, you want to empower us. You want to strengthen us with your love and your grace and your forgiveness. Father, I pray that we as the church would be able to model um, something beautiful in this area of life that is becoming increasingly foreign to the world. I pray that in this respect, we would truly be a light on a hill. Um, help us to do it in a way that is not judgmental, that is um, not condescending. Um, help us to do it in a way that is graceful and wise and loving. And in a way that, that others might see and say, wow, um, they have something special. In Jesus' name. Amen.